Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. As the ushers come forward, and they can do that now and begin to receive offering, I want to present to you a song that um, many of you will know, many of you do not know, and I want to discuss it for you in a minute. So first of all, here, play this. I hear the drums echoing tonight She hears only whispers of some quiet conversation She's coming in 12.30 flights The moonlit wings reflect the stars that guide me towards salvation Stopped an old man along the way, hoping to find some old forgotten words or ancient melodies. He turned to me as if to say, Hurry, boy, it's waiting there for you. First of all, how many of you, uh, hardcore types, how many of you recognize the moment the, the opening riff started before the mute voice? How many of you recognize it? You are my people, okay? Um, now, uh, those of you who do not recognize the song, it's uh, entitled Africa by a group called Toto, and it's a classic of a bygone era. Soaring vocals. Um, someone else took this song, and they did a little bit of an adjustment to you, and I want to play to you now their version of it. Now, there's two or three out there, they're sitting going, what was the difference? <laughs> okay? And for those of you who struggled and suffered through that, just a quick, just 30 seconds of cleansing, please.
just to cleanse my mind, okay? <laughs> if you didn't need it. Um, if you didn't understand music at all, uh, whoever did that, and I have no idea why they did this, uh, um, it, they, they took it one step out of key and off beat. And so here's a song that has these soaring, beautiful vocals um, that they have taken, frankly, completely destroyed. Uh, in my opinion, and, and for many of us, especially those, the more tuned to music you are, the more painful that was, and I apologize, I really do. Um, but it, it sets up for our conversation today, and this will be a little bit of a complex conversation. Um, we're launching a series entitled Experiencing God, and I'm hoping as we walk through this you'll understand why it's entitled that. The subtitle of this specific one is The Prince or the Pauper. The prince and the pauper, but the prince or the pauper. And I want to set up this, this out-of-tune experience for you up front that hopefully by the back end of this you'll understand uh, why this was significant and what we're going to try to achieve going forward. I've seen a trend, and I, I watch trends. I, ex I explore those things. Uh, I, I try to stay current and reading everything that's involved. And I've watched this over the years, and there's certain ones I've seen. Um, probably the last 20 years or so, particularly within the church, has been an emphasis upon leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And there's a plethora of leadership books that are out there in the drive for that. And this attracts me because my primary gift is leadership. My secondary one is teaching. Some of you may feel that that's actually a third-level gift, but either way. Um, but my primary one's leadership. That's just a natural element of what I flow into. It was one forged in the fires of Flint, Michigan, back before the water crisis even hit. And, um, and so I'm drawn to that. And I've watched over the last 20, 30 years <clears throat> as this leadership ethos has entered into the church in intense fashion. There are parts of that that we walked a little bit of ways with because leadership does matter and sharpening our skills in this area do matter. But increasingly over the last decade plus or so, it's taken a, a deeper turn of emphasizing dependency upon the leader rather than upon the Holy Spirit. Upon applying increasingly um, worldly and natural leadership styles and tendencies rather than biblical or supernatural leadership qualities. The breaking point for us uh, with one particular organization was when there was a sketch being done that had a a pastor and his associate, they were friends, they had begun the church together as brothers, but the lead pastor suddenly realized that the church was not going to go to the next level, whatever that is, with this guy's leadership skills, that he tapped out the level of that. And so <clears throat> this leader needed to make the tough decision, <clears throat> the leadership, the courageous call to fire, terminate his partner for no reason other than the fact that he didn't have a certain skill level to take them to the next level. How does a leader in this role guard against their own arrogance or their own desires for attention or aggrandizement or enlargement? How do they, that the process is, is bankrupt. I don't see any time that Paul would have ever said to Barnabas, you know, Barney, you got me this far, but Silas is a better singer. I'm going to go that route. And so we we separated from following that too much further. Another thing I've recently come across is again, and I've referenced this before, I'm kind of drawn to it, you know. There's a statement of, of, the, of the experience. I like experiences, I understand the power of experiences. I come from a Pentecostal background and they're all about experiences. And so the concept now is about 
inviting you to our midweek experience or to our Sunday morning experience. And the idea is we want to draw you into this experience that you're having. And it's a way to tap in. And I understand the trend of that. It taps into a certain sense of spirituality that doesn't have any doctrinal basis. There was an advertisement I received not long ago. Um, don't just keep your first-time guests. Wow them with a culture of hospitality. Bring their widely acclaimed guest experience boot camp. I believe you give your team a new way to look at the guest experience. And, and it's from a church that I, I've, I like and I know the leadership and they're good people. So this is not an assault upon other things here, but there's a trend that's happening that, that I find myself easily to go with but, but repelled by at the same time. You see, the idea of experiencing church, and I think that's okay, and even what Rob said here, that we experience our relationships, and that's, I believe that. I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. But if your primary reason is only to experience church or fellowship, then we're no business different than, a, than a, a country club or anything else. The thing that's unique about the church is that I was always taught growing up, it was to experience God. It was to come like to gatherings like this and not just to be intellectually... Um, satiated uh, or in no way to be entertained and one writer lists three different types of pastors to watch for one's uh, entertain and he's got the entertainer it's a pragmatist at heart whatever the people want they'll get it under the leadership of an entertainer next one he warns about is the unbalanced teachers who don't allow their ministry to be text driven driven by scripture but rather camp out on one specific theme or so and the third type he warned about was the lover of this world namely prosperity gospel preachers, the ones who want your best life now, as if eternity doesn't exist and as if we're not aware that this is a time of struggle and difficulties and that there's going to be something else that we should reach for and not just put all our efforts here because there's something beyond this world. And so when I see this element of, of experiencing church in this leadership style that is often self-promoting marketing and is involved with winners and losers and taking on to the next big, biggest thing. And I, I believe in great illustrations. I believe in ways that we capture attention as we did just, to, just did now. I, I don't know how far that goes when it gets to the point where uh, where a lead pastor is jumping out of a plane, skydiving, and so his congregation's in worship, and then somebody sees him on the screen as he's skydiving on down, and he hits the ground in the parking lot and then walks on inside and begins the message. I, I think that's great. <laughs> if I did that, you'd be looking for a new lead pastor probably pretty quick. I'm not a skydiver. And you wonder how far do we go in trying to draw attention at what point do methodologies, which I think can be powerful and effective, um, give sway to just sheer entertainment or aggrandizement or being driven by something other than the Holy Spirit in the process. Let me give you a list of, uh, of some of the books that are out here, and these are from a Christian author. The 15 Invaluable Laws of Growth. Absolutely invaluable. You have to have these. The 21 indispensable qualities of a leader, becoming the person others will want to follow. The 21 irrefutable laws. You can't refute these. these are, this is irrefutable. Okay, um, Follow them and people will follow you. Indisputable. 17 of these. There's 17 indisputable laws of teamwork. Embrace them and empower your team. And then the 17 essential qualities of a team player, becoming the kind of person every team wants. They're invaluable, indispensable, irrefutable, indisputable, essential. You cannot argue with any of these. This is from a Christian author. And again, I think these are, they're, they're actually, it's good material. It's good elements. There's nothing wrong with those features, but if that's what is driving us, if that is what becomes natural for us, it 
Does everything rise and fall in leadership? certain ways, yeah. I mean, it makes a big difference how Rob approached something here just now because Rob's a leader and the way he engaged you and drew that in as compared to someone else who comes up, can't communicate, can't address things and, and, and has no awareness of, 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 of an audience or anything else of that nature. So in, in some degree, yes, but there's also a danger to that because that kind of leadership can take us in a directions we shouldn't necessarily go. We're seeing a mindset in our country that designates winners as those who dominate, control, or even denigrate others on the political scene. I think the same thing has entered in often into the church. And so we become obsessed with winners and, and not losers. I like being a winner, don't like being a loser. Not advocating leadership. But again, I raise questions in the process of this. First of all, understand that leadership itself is, as one writer put it, a misunderstood calling oftentimes. As this writer put it, he said, leaders may appear controlling because they're called to lead. And so they're called controlling. They may come across as unapproachable because they set boundaries. They may be viewed as hard because they are called to defend. They may appear secretive because they must choose their words carefully. If they're not available 24-7, we say they are not there for us. If they can't make every event or respond to every email, tweet, Facebook post, we label them as unavailable. And he ends it by saying, we need a lot more grace. But then you contrast that misunderstanding with the active grasp of things. This is actually drawn from a lead pastor's website here that I'm familiar with. He says, and defines this person as a gifted pastor who, listen, catch, who creates strategic alliances with organizations and leaders to effectively align and support key sustainable initiatives in the region through God's love and grace and mercy, currently builds and retains high-performance teams that initiate and sustain great works of impact for the glory of God. I, I, I want to be on that group. I want to be part of that. But, but catch what it's saying. Basically, it's saying, I seek and recruit the best and the brightest to do the greatest. That's a summarization of that. Effectively align, support, initiatives, build, retain, high-performance teams, great impact. We seek and recruit the best and the brightest to do the greatest. I don't think you should seek and recruit the worst and the dumbest, but where's the break point in this and how does this align with scripture and with how God approaches things? There is um, a book, I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, it's one I've used, uh, and I have a stack of books actually and this is just a small grouping of them. I mean, all the ones that I just listed there, some of those that I've, I've got involved, I've got uh, principle-centered leadership and uh, uh, developing leaders around you, et cetera, et cetera. But there's one particularly that's of interest that I've actually used. And someone was shocked recently. How many of you have ever heard of The Prince by Machiavelli? Uh, how many of you have ever heard of the term Machiavellian? More of you. It's drawn from this book. Written in the 1500s by um, a guy. He's advising the prince on how to rule and how to lead. Many people sum up his works as um, the ends justify the means. Something that instantly is not a biblical viewpoint. We think how we get there matters. And so he offers things like this, and some of them you might be familiar with. A few quotes here. He says, it's much safer to be feared than loved because love is preserved by the link of obligation which owing to the baseness of men is broken at every opportunity for their advantage. But fear preserves you by a dread of punishment which never fails. So in other words, as a leader, reach for fear, <clears throat> not love. That will intimidate people and they're more likely to stay put than out of love. 
Another quote is, if an injury has to be done to a man, it should be so severe that his vengeance need not be feared. In other words, if you do have to address someone, kill them so they don't rise back up to cause you any trouble. Never attempt to win by force what can be won by deception. This one's great. The promise given was a necessity of the past. The word broken is a necessity of the present. In other words, we do what's necessary. If the past we gave our word, that was the past. Today we must break that because that's the necessity of the present. I'm going to take a small side point here. How many of you ever played the game Risk? Okay. Um, it's a game of global domination. I love this game. I was good at it. We had tournaments in college that would last for like 24 hours. Uh, when it came time to go to breakfast in the morning, we'd all go to breakfast together to make sure no one was making deals. Okay, I mean, it was that intense. And one of the beauties about this game is that you can make agreements and alliances. That's the subtext of the thing. There's certain rules you follow, but there's another rule. You can make an agreement. I'll make an agreement for three moves that, that I will not attack you here and you will not attack me here for three moves. And that way we can force, put our, our, our attentions elsewhere in attacking other people. I was the only person that I know of in the whole thing that I never broke an agreement. Even if it was to my disadvantage, even if things had changed by the second move. There were times even I would have someone who would ask me, say, can I break that agreement because I need a certain feature that I can get by taking a country of yours. And I would say, we're in agreement, do it, I understand. But one thing I never did is I never broke an agreement, ever. Even if it meant losing the game. What we say needs to matter. And whatever was said in the past still holds to the present. There's more that he has here. This one's I think you should understand. Uh, Therefore, it is unnecessary for a prince to have all the good qualities of an enumerated. It's not necessary for him. But it's very necessary to appear to have them. I'll dare to say this, that to have them and always to observe these good things, the right things you should do, the things we'd call as righteous, is injurious cause you damage, that, appear to have, but that, that to appear to have them as useful, to appear merciful, faithful, humane, religious, upright, and even to be so, but with a mind so framed that should you require not to be so, that you'll be able and know how to change the opposite. In other words, we take on the appearance of these giftings and abilities, but only so long as they give us goodwill and advancement. The moment they become a detriment, you ditch your ethics. He goes on to say, any man who tries to be good all the time is bound to come to ruin among the great number who are not good. Hence, a prince who wants to keep his authority must learn how not to be good and use that knowledge or refrain from using it as necessity requires. And then this last quote I'll give you. Because at this point in time, the, the, hopefully for some of you, the, the, the dysfunctionality of this tune is beginning to grate on you that you can't handle too much more, I hope. I hope there's not a portion of you that are taking notes on this and saying, mm, this is good stuff. <laughs> Got to apply this tomorrow in my process, in my company. How we live is so different from how we ought to live that he who studies what ought to be done rather than what is actually done in reality by people will learn the way to his downfall rather than his preservation. In other words, it's better to learn evil than to learn good because most people are evil. And therefore, you should become a practitioner of the same. This book is a classic in leadership. Many of you don't know this, but it is one of the one it considered because he has a lot of really smart stuff in here. Now, some think he wrote as a satire. Others, though, believe that he wrote as a serious attempt 
to show the current Prince of Florence that he was a guy that was worthwhile having around and to reinstating into government. Why do I use this in leadership training? Have you figured it out why yet? Because if you apply this, you'll go far. Because if you apply this, you are absolutely outside the kingdom of God. I use this book in leadership training to say this is what we ought not to be. This will appeal to certain traits in your character that are flawed. Identify it. Realize this is not how to operate. And the vast majority of people that I've taught with this book grasp that and apply that, and, and there's great things with that. How does that contrast and why the title The Prince or The Pauper? Some of you might be getting ahead at this point in time, but some of you remember the original book was The Prince and The Pauper. Interestingly enough, it was written in the same, uh, uh, it's written not in the, it was written in the 1800s, but it was written about the same time period in the 1500s that Machiavelli wrote. And it's writing in England of the 1500s, 1547, where a, 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 a prince and a poor little kid, a pauper, come into contact with another, and they're exactly identical, visually alike. And so they determine to switch roles. And so the pauper, which means a very poor person, becomes the prince for a while. And the prince walks amongst his own people, and he lives incognito among the people. In the same way, we have a challenge in whatever roles we have as to whether we will become the prince of this or whether we will become the pauper. Now, where do I draw this into? Because if you look at Matthew chapter 5 and you look at how Jesus begins one of the most powerful messages ever given, the Beatitudes, the blessed are they, he begins with this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, Matthew chapter 5, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. He began to teach them and says this, blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is going to be the, the kingdom of heaven. They're going to rule and reign in heaven. But he begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Someone says, well, that seems weird. It should be rich in spirit. No, what it means is, that, is, is an utter dependency upon God. It means an utter humility. Leaders in a worldly sense cover up their mistakes or, or take every failure and somehow put a spin on it as to why it's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. But in the economy of Christ, there's an admission of failure. There's a recognition of weakness. There's, a, there's an emptying. Christ, we're told, empties himself. His whole style of leadership is drastically different than that which is being superimposed oftentimes within the church and that we buy into in our workplaces and within our homes as well. All of us exercise leadership or influence as it's defined in one way or another. Do we follow after the ways of the prince or after the ways of the pauper who says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble. In Matthew chapter 20, he calls them together at one point when they're fighting amongst themselves and disciples, and, and we've said this passage before, but you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. You're not supposed to pattern after that way. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must become your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. This is the example he says I set for you. In Philippians chapter 2, where it's talking about the nature of Christ, it says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Ambition isn't wrong. 
I've had one or two friends that have just recently been promoted to some key positions, and I rejoice with them. And I know them enough to know that they're going to use those positions to bless others, and not just for themselves. But there are others, both within the church and outside of the church, within this room even here, that we do things not just because we're ambitious, but out of selfish ambition. is to take the position and the power and the influence we have to damage others, or at the very least, to exalt ourselves. And Jesus says, that's wrong. Rather than humility, value others. Look to the interest of others. It's a different style of leadership. Let me give you a little bit of an example and have you a little test case here right now. Peter, you guys know this guy, right? Peter has, has messed up on different things, but there's a shining moment. This guy has a brilliant moment. They're, they're in the room, and upper room, and, and they've been with Jesus for 40 days, and then they've been kind of praying and hanging out for 10 days, and suddenly the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them all, and they begin to speak in tongues, and it breaks out, and a crowd's gathering. What's this, all this commotion? Oh, you guys are drunk. And, and Peter gets up, which to me is always funny. He says, how can we be drunk? It's only, you know, 9 a.m., you know? Which means, like, what kind of defense is that? You know, it's like, you get drunk anytime you want. Well, we don't usually do it in the morning, though. And then he goes on and he gives this history lesson and this background. And we're told that after he's through speaking, 3,000 people enter into the church. They become followers of Jesus Christ. That's good stuff. He is successful. Wind the clock forward a little bit. And you've got another guy. His name is Stephen. He's a deacon. He takes this low-level, no-limelight thing of taking food to the needy widows. And he's questioned at one point by the authorities because he was faithfully obeying the mandate to be a witness. And what happens? He gives also a speech that's laden with history and and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And and there's things that he lays out. and, And it's a fantastic moment. And do you know how that moment ends? 3,000 people don't get saved. In fact, from what we can tell, only one person who listened to what that was said that we know later accepts Christ at a much later date, and it wasn't due to what happened necessarily with Stephen. You know what Stephen gets? Stephen gets stoned. Now, for those of you who are in the drug culture, we're talking something different, okay? (laughs) He literally gets stoned. He dies. So which of these two people were the most successful and effective? And the answer within the realm of the pauper is both. That Stephen was just as successful, just as blessed and directed by God as Peter was in that moment. Now, if you have trouble wrapping your brain around that, then that's where you need to struggle with the gospel. Because it's about faithfulness, not about success and numbers. It's about faithfulness. Was Stephen faithful to God in that moment? He absolutely was. Now, I could draw from this. I'm going to resist a bit, but I could draw from this that the one person who was at least influenced by that moment It shaped something and maybe dropped something in their brain. That's not why they got saved. But it dropped something in their brain. was a guy named Paul, and Paul later transforms everything. He's the most brilliant person that comes into play practically in this time period. But it really wasn't Stephen's moment that did that. He was being struck on the road to Emmaus, or on the road rather to Damascus at the time. We look at what we see as success and failure and we, we look at winners and losers and our society politically and even within the church gauges us in such a way that we have such a shallow, increasingly shallow methodology that increasingly we take more and more the prince's mindset than we do that of one who came poor in spirit. 
And so we look at Peter and we look at Stephen and we say, Peter's a winner. Stephen, what a loser. But they were both faithful, honored by God, right in what they did. Quickly, I just want to draw your attention back to Saul. Samuel's this guy who's been leading the children of Israel and, and, and the people say, we want a king though. We want, we want what everyone else wants. We want the leadership that the rest of the nations have. We don't want to just have this guy who's kind of channeling God for us. We want something else. We want the pomp and the circumstance. We want the royal standards and the guards. We want the flash and, and we, we want Prince Diana. Okay, we want all Princess Diana. We want all that. So he says, okay. Interestingly enough, when Samuel's kind of distraught over that because he's led well for years and he feels rejected by it, understandably so, God says, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me, he says. Give them what they want. This is the really dangerous thing. God often will give us what we want. One of the things you need to determine is what did you really want? And then another thing is we tend to get the leadership we deserve as a nation and otherwise. And you might want to think about that one for a while too. But. So he gives them a king. And Saul starts off really great. And Saul, we're told, is head and shoulders above anybody else. He is a good-looking guy. He's powerful, strong, charismatic, all that goes with this. But as time goes on, it's clear increasingly that he's mostly focused on what the people want and not what God wants. He takes polls on everything as to what he should do. He's very much a modern politician in that viewpoint. At one point in time, because the, the, the men are starting to wander away before an attack that he's been called to do by God, um, he offers the sacrifice because Samuel hasn't shown up. He's crossed a line spiritually, and he knows that. And there's several other things he does too, and as a result, he's set aside by God. He's, he's no longer going to be the leader. He'll fill out his term, but there's someone else that's to lead. So Saul is driven by poles, and in the latter days of his life, he consults a witch. Meanwhile, God goes and seeks a different kind of leader out, not from the, the ranks of the aristocracy, not from the military, not from the clergy. He goes to this kid with a guitar, in essence, sitting on a hillside, taking care of sheep. David, who's even the youngest of his gathering here. And this is constant in scripture, if you see. If you look at God's style of leadership, it's not always the, in fact, rarely is it the eldest or the firstborn. It's not Esau, it's Jacob. It's Gideon, who's the least of his tribe, the least of his family, the least of the least of the least of the least that's taken to lift things forward. And you can go through the history and find that it's these second sons, these ones who weren't supposed to have the giftings and abilities that are raised up to lead in the initial time. When he goes for the disciples, he doesn't find the best and the brightest. He finds a bunch of guys who are open and willing to follow him. And they transform the world. Look at his style of leadership. Giftings are important, but who we follow, who our hearts are tuned to, means more than anything else. And so Saul inquires of witches and the people. David, we're told over and over again, inquires of the Lord. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but he is inquiring of the Lord all the time. That's his focus. God, what 